With load shedding happening almost on a daily basis, it's clear that there's a struggle at ESCOM to keep the lights on. And according to my guest today in this episode of Outer Insights, the power utility is under siege. I'm Ilse Saltzvedel and my guest today is News24 journalist Carl Cowan, author of a newly published book called Sabotage, ESCOM Under Siege. Carl, thanks for chatting to us today. Please give us a brief overview of what you expose in your book on ESCOM and, of course, who you expose. The premise of the book is quite simple. You know, I, I work for News24 and, and we have an investigations team here. And, you know, sort of early last year, we were given a quite a large set of documents um, relating to ESCOM. And, and we called it the ESCOM files and we've written... Ugh, I think upwards of, of 80 stories out of those documents that were published in the course of last year and early this year. And during that time, you know, we were obviously looking very closely at what was going on at ESCOM and load shedding was happening and things weren't getting better. And it was sort of like this strange juxtaposition because you have this, this new leadership at ESCOM, this new CEO, the new chief operations officer, the new board with, with a wonderful chairperson in Professor Mahoba. And things are just not getting better. So what's the reason for that? You know, well, how come things are not getting better? And then towards late last year, something happened at Latabo Power Station. And, and the book sort of starts with this incident at Latabo, where this pylon was, you know, the steel supports for this pylon that was carrying power lines for a conveyor belt that transports coal overland at Latabo, which is just here near Vereniging, near Johannesburg. Those supports were cut on this pylon and the pylon was pushed over uphill, uphill onto a backup power supply line and thereby cutting all the power off to this conveyor belt for about six hours, you know, engineers working late into the night to try and get it done. We had already had load shedding at the time that this happened in in sort of mid-November last year. And then this pylon gets pushed over and these supports are neatly cut with some kind of power tool or something. And Latabo, which is generally one of the better performing power stations, suddenly is at risk of going offline. It's about 3,000 megawatts. That's stage six load shedding, boom, right there. And the next day, or I think it was the next day or a day or two later, the CEO of ESCOM has this media briefing. And Andre de Reiter says to the country, you know, this is now sabotaged and we can call it as such. And at that point, I sat up because... We had previously heard of the term sabotage surrounding ESCOM, but there's never really been such clear evidence of this. You know, there's pictures of the pylon that fell over. There's pictures of the steel supports that were cut. And I I thought to myself, no, hold hold on. Let me look at this a little bit deeper. And knowing, you know, in the back of my mind, what I had sort of covered for News24, what I had written about for News24 was all these other issues that, the leadership of ESCOM was dealing with. They had this major corruption cleanup that they were trying to do, major forensic investigations. And then the counterattack against them, allegations of racism, allegations of nepotism, allegations of corruption. Um, They spent upwards at some points during the first two years of Andre Dorator's tenure, he and Jan Oberol, sort of the two most senior executives, spent upwards of 40% of any given week just responding to investigations into them, you know, about allegations that had been made. And I sort of started to realize that the sabotage is not really just at power stations, which 
you know, makes load shedding worse. But it's also in the boardrooms at ESCOM where these two people, including the board chairperson and the chief financial officer, are under constant attack. There hasn't been a moment where, you know, in the first two years of the writer being on the job, that he hasn't been under attack. And it's something that I think speaks to the mentality of, of what is happening with how state capture is being cleaned up, how corruption is being cleaned up, and that fight back effort. And that's really how the book was born. And, and the book will talk about, you know, how the battles that they faced and how they faced, you know, they saw off their accusers one by one. They were, they were vindicated ultimately by all these investigations. But the net effect of this is, is that they weren't really focusing on the job. And we see it on social media as well. Detractors are quick to comment on load shedding, conveniently forgetting that it was basically 11 years in the making or even longer. You are also discussing debt in this book. Debt and money is a massive problem at ISCOM. It's also holding back the country because we cannot invest in new power. Tell us a bit more about the financials that you disclose in Sabotage. Yeah, so, I mean, the ESCOM financial situation is pretty dire, but it is improving slightly. And, and that is, it's giving me a little bit of hope. So to, to, to contextualize this, um, ESCOM's debt book, you know, about two years ago was $450 billion. That's billion with a B. And it is now, by the end of this financial year, it, it should be reduced down to about $400 billion. And that's just through some, some clever movement or, you know, paying older loans first, that kind of stuff. ESCOM's debt really is an anchor that, you know, that is dragging it down. But there's a, there's a bigger contextual issue about the debt. What we must remember is, is that ESCOM didn't incur debt because it was struggling financially. ESCOM incurred debt, major debt, to build new power stations to build Madupi, Kusile, and Angula. The lion's share of ESCOM's debt, as we said, of 400-odd billion, is linked to Madupi and Kusile. So if you look at Madupi and Kusile and what has actually happened there, the corruption, the delays, the, the corruption contributing to delays, delays contributing to corruption, it's like, you know, these two projects are really cesspools of just textbook how not to let a project spiral out of control. Right, And if you look at Madupi and Kusile, they were supposed to be our answers to ending load shedding, which is severely damaging to the economy. And then there's the economic costs, which we also talk about a little bit in the book. Stage two load shedding, a full day of stage two load shedding costs the, the economy something like 470 million rand. If you start to, to understand that already in 2022, we've had 54 days of, of, of intermittent stage two load shedding, but it's been there, it all starts to add up. Sorry, and that is 470 million per day. Yeah, per full day of stage two load shedding. That, that's according to a study that ESCOM commissioned by Nova Economics. Okay. Now, I, I've checked that figure with, with some other people, you know, and, and they, they said that's pretty reasonable. But if you're looking at how ESCOM has implemented load shedding in 2022, so they've, they've effectively, you know, limited, tried to limit load shedding to peak periods only. So between five and 10 at night when, you know, everyone's getting home and switching on their stoves and, and, and making dinner and so on. That is slightly better because a lot of your, your industry is still operating, but a lot of the time your, your industry demand is, is lower during that specific time period. But it still costs the economy a lot of money. Mm. You know, it, it still costs you and I a lot of grief and, 
you know, it's just sort of, it's inconvenient and it's just, it's stressful. Yes. And we must dealing. take out, we must dish out extra money for generators yeah, I, and you know, uh, lights and, you, and, you pay your taxes at the, mm. you know, and you pay your taxes at the end of the month and you, you hope for the best, you know, Yes. Um, and, and the best never comes. So it's, it's, it's the, it's the same, it's the same argument. You know, if, if you look at Madubi and Kusile, we, we've got this massive debt that ESCOM has been struggling to pay. And then we incurred this debt for these two new power stations that were supposed to save ESCOM from this load shedding that was coming, that's on the horizon. It always was. And that hasn't happened. It hasn't materialized. Now there's design defects and all sorts of things involved with the boilers and all of these things, which are going to cost more money to rectify. And, and it just becomes this very toxic cycle very, very quickly. As we're sitting here, Madupi is not operating at optimal capacity because of defects. It's it's slowly being fixed, but it's going to cost a lot of money. Kusile, fortunately, some of the boilers weren't finished yet, so they're able to to do the you know fix those design problems as they're building the last couple of ones. But the units that are currently running, they've recently had a very good run of performance, which is heartening considering that they're brand new and they need to run like that for another thirty years. So you know that that's that's good. But we are sitting with a situation where ESCOM cannot pay the debt. The power stations aren't finished. So load shedding is still happening, and therefore the economy is still suffering. And then people in government, people in the ANC government, actually have the audacity to turn around and say to, to the country, oh, you know, this, you know, we, we have to bail out ESCOM, and this is now the last time that we're going to bail out ESCOM, and so on and so forth. But the reality is, is that ESCOM warned government from about 1998 right we need to build new power stations we're going to run out of capacity by about 2008-2009 strews bob that's exactly what happened 2008 load shedding started 2007 actually it took government far too long and and former president Mbeki actually recognized this you know in, in late 2007 he actually apologized to the country and said you know government should have listened to escom you know i'm sorry but it was too late because we started building madupi and kusile far too late now, because of the overruns, it's just a disaster. Effectively, what we have here is we're sitting in the exact same situation now where ESCOM is telling the country and government, we need X amount of, I think it's something like 50 or 60,000 megawatts of renewable capacity because in the next 13 years, we're shutting down eight of our coal-fired power stations. You know, we need to start building that now so that we don't face the same situation again, you know, 15 years from now. And unfortunately, it just seems that everybody is very slow to react again. And yes, lots I, of worried. red tape, not acting, exactly. not actually giving any attention to the contracts and the deadlines and the things that have actually mm. been um, asked mm. for two years ago. But wasn't it two years ago that Ramaphosa said this is going to be a priority, a priority. now? Yes. Yep. I want yeah. you to quantify the time overruns and the money overruns at Madupi and Kusili because I think people do not mm. realize how much money was wasted and how much mm. longer it's taking to finish that project. Right. So, so Madupi and Kusili were both supposed to be finished in 2015 and 16. So Madupi is not completely finished yet. Um, there's a, the units are up and running except for the one that exploded, of course. But um, it, it was it, you could you could call it finished, but it was only finished last year. Um, Kusile has still got another two or three years to go. It was supposed to be done in 2016. The costs have effectively doubled. So 160 billion rand Kusile is going to cost at completion. Estimated, sure. it's probably going to be more than that. Madupi, I think, is 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 somewhere around 130 billion that it's cost so far. 
which cost is likely to increase by another 20 billion because they have to fit flue gas desulfurization plants. But the, the real problem is, and, and this is something that, that is very difficult to quantify, the real problem at Madupi, for example, is not just the delays. It's what caused those delays. Because if you think about it logically, contractors file claims. If there's a delay and they can't access a certain part of the site, they file a claim because they're standing around, they can't access, and so on and so forth. But what is causing those delays? What is causing them to be unable to access? And, and that is something that you know, forensic investigations need to start looking into. And I believe that they have. But it's, it's a massive thing because effectively, you are now trying to quantify how much you've overpaid and you know, what's the reason behind that overpayment. And that's, that's a years-long exercise because if you think about Madupi, you know, and people think about power stations, and, and I don't think that people who've never seen these power stations understand fully how big these things are. So to give you an example, the boilers themselves, you know, the, the much vaunted infamous boilers at Madupi, those things are more than 100 meters tall. It's enormous. You know, it, the entire site is just, it's huge. You cannot fathom the amount of moving parts that go through there and the amount mm-hmm. of contractors and people working on, on those power stations as they get built, it's on a huge scale. And that's what ESCOM now has to try and do. They have to now try and go back and say, okay, we're paying so much for Madupi, but why are we paying so much? What okay. caused these delays? And then we'll be able to turn around and say, hopefully to some of these contractors, right, guys, you caused X, Y, and Z problems. We caused X, Y, and Z problems. We've paid you X for the problems we caused, but we think you owe us Y for the problems you caused. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. That's what I wanted to ask you, because at the beginning of the writer's tenure, there was this huge big press conference where some companies admitted that they played a part in ESCOM losing money and they made reparations. Their names were made public. But not everybody who stole from ESCOM, if you can call it that, or Mm. who abused the systems, the procurement systems at ESCOM has been investigated and has been exposed. Mm. Can we expect, for instance, on a defective boiler or a a part, Mm. a really expensive part that these companies must pay for damage or for not having the parts ready and Mm. running optimally? If ESCOM plays the game right yes but it requires a strength of will and political a level will. of cunning political will i suppose as well in in some cases political will, but mostly it you know these these contracts that you have with these major multinational companies for example they, they are not managed in in an, in an adversarial way most of the time you you have to be quite smart in how you manage these contracts and, and any you know contract manager who's worked on like major construction things like this will tell you this you know, ESCOM as the employer, as the client, wants to get the best out of these people as at the, what they possibly can. The contractor, on the other hand, is there to make money. They don't build boilers and turbines and these sort of things because they, they enjoy doing it. They do it because they've got the expertise and they can make a shitload of money, right? The, the net effect of that is, is that you have to find that balancing act between managing a contract properly and getting the deliverables done and not being messed around by this contractor who's got all these fancy lawyers and, you know, it's got all these fancy technicians and engineers who know what they're, what they're on about. So you as ESCOM effectively have to be smarter than these people. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to box clever and, and get them to do what you want and not end up paying an arm and a leg for it, right? Because these things cost an arm and a leg anyway. So 
it, it, it becomes quite a quite an interesting exercise when you actually delve down into you know some of the things that these contractors have claimed in the past and you know some of the figures that I've heard around claims books you know concurrent claims at Kusile totaling more than 200 billion rand over time you know and, sure. and ESCOM having to spend an, an enormous amount of money on on lawyers and so on to to fight those claims you know and fortunately you know a lot of these claims is just contractors I think taking a big fat chance and trying to see how much they can get away with Fortunately, it looks like ESCOM has managed that, that process quite well in terms of Kusile, at least. I'm not too sure about Madupi yet. So it, it, it starts to become quite technical when, when you start to, to delve into these things. But what is very clear to me is that the project management of Madupi and Kusile has been relatively poor most of the time. There are pockets of excellence, as, as you know, to use the jargon. There, there were times where things were going well when certain people were there and when certain people were not there. And it's going to be my job as an investigative reporter at some point to be able to tell the public about who were the bad apples and who were the good apples who, who got things working and who didn't get things working. But again, the scale of this is so enormous that I could probably spend the next 10 years simply investigating things at Kusile and never really reach a point of conclusion. The back channel to that is, is that, of course, a lot of investigations at Kusile specifically have already happened. A lot of forensic investigations, a lot of criminal referrals, um, and not only just at Kusile, but in, in, in other contracts in general and so on. And, and one of the, the key things that has come out of all of this is that a lot of investigation work has happened, a lot of forensic investigation work, and many cases have been reported to the police and many criminal referrals have been made by the Special Investigating Unit to the National Prosecuting Authority. What is very clear as well is that there has been very little progress on the NPA side to actually prosecute anyone. Now, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about majorly complicated state capture cases. I'm talking about former CEOs whose stepdaughters were shareholders of companies, you know, Mr. Machila mm. Koko, mm. stepdaughter was shareholder of a company. This company got X amount of deals, was promised billions of rands worth of deals in, in bed with a multinational company who is, and, and bearing in mind, this multinational company, ABB, um, has self-reported most of, of the stuff that it's, it's exactly. figured out. It's paid back a lot of money to ESCOM. But... You know, I mean, you, you've got this company giving you it, its full cooperation, basically. And it's saying to you, this is what we could find internally. And, and yet still our prosecutors are not moving on any of this. So what's the I, problem? I is, is that um, because of incompetence, because of being overwhelmed with so much work? We all know that the NPA has been hollowed out over years. Mm. Or is mm. there a matter of political will not to prosecute? I think it's a combination of all of the above. But... I must also hasten to add that I do not think that the people who's, who I know are working on, say, for example, the ABB Coco matter, I do not think that they are necessarily incompetent. I think they are quite competent, but I do think that there is a level of, oh, you know, shit, this is very, very big. You know, I, I, I don't really know if we as a country have the resources in, in terms of prosecutions and investigations, law enforcement investigations, to actually tackle these big multinational companies. So it, it becomes a, a question of, do you bring people in from outside? Do you pay consultants as the National mm. Prosecuting Authority? Do you bring in lawyers, advocates, you know, and, and forensic specialists or, or claims analysts? Do you bring them in to help you pull a case together? And I'd say yes. 
And I would say to the NPA, I, I believe that the private sector has made an offer to the NPA for resources. I would say go for it. There is no shame in admitting that you can't do it on your own. You know, that's something that you learn as a journalist very, very early on. Yes. Especially when you're facing complex issues. You can't do it on your own. You have to pick up the phone and phone a professor at that university or a, you know, <laughs> I, I, I love speaking to, to, to PhD candidates who are involved in a certain topic that I, that I find interesting or whatever because they are so passionate about it still. They haven't had time to, to go out into the real world and become cynical and, and, and mm. desensitized about what they're passionate about. You know, so it's, it, it's that kind of thinking, I think, that's holding the NPA back a little bit. It's, it's that kind of thing that where we're saying, no, no, we are the NPA and, you know, we are independent and we'll act. And, you know, at, but the truth of the matter is, is that, you you, you know, you, you're at sea without a paddle. Um, you, yes. you guys know what needs to be done. You, you know what you want to achieve, but you simply don't actually have the resources. So at what point do you start realizing that as a country collectively, what we need to see are prosecutions? And I'm not talking about you know, prosecuting, let's say, for example, Brian Malefi, the former ESCOM CEO. I'm not saying we should prosecute Brian Malefi for every single alleged crime that he's ever committed in his entire adult life. Mm. I'm saying pick something and run with it. Yes. They are basic PFMA. Like, you know, in, in the Zonda report on ESCOM, Brian Malefi signed procurement for, for the Gupta's New Age newspaper or, so, or something like that. It was a clear violation of the PFMA. He didn't have the authority to sign it as the CEO. Uh, or was the, I, I can't even remember if he was CEO of Eskom or Transnet at the time. Who knows? It, it's a clear PFMA violation. It's, it's, it's something that a junior prosecutor could probably take to court and get done within you know, a year. Or exactly, exactly. Uh, so what you're also saying is the same that Atas Rudy Heineke is saying, do not build these complex cases that will lead to 87 interlocutory appeals and things within a hearing. Just get some people prosecuted yeah. and the rest will follow. Yeah. And, and again, it's about showing that you're up to the job, right? Mm. So, so as a journalist, when, when I'm faced with something like the ESCOM files, right, and, and it lands on my desk and it's 10,000 pages of documents, I don't sit and go, okay, right, I'm going to read every single one of these 10,000 pages of documents and then I'm going to write one story uh, of about, you know, book length and try and get people interested in reading it. No, 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 no. You identify key themes, you look at individuals, and you build stories or narratives around those individuals so that it's bite-sized, people can understand it, and you explain to people what the impact of those decisions were. You know, oh, corruption at Kusile worth... 100 million rand in paid paid back to 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 you know by contractors to escom officials what's the net impact of that oh these mm. officials also happen to sit on the claims committee approving claims from other people so on and so forth so effectively the whole situation becomes okay Cecilia was delayed by i don't know a year okay. because people were stealing money instead of doing their jobs you know so it's it, it's something like that and and I mean, the PFMA exists for a reason, right? When, when you're the CEO of a company like ESCOM, you, you have to adhere to the PF, PFMA. You have to adhere, to, obviously, to, to, to other laws as well. But the PFMA is the most important one, right? When you, it, it governs your procurement. It governs your, your ethical structures, all these sort of things. So why not just convict someone on the PFMA, on the strength of the PMF, PFMA? Mm. We can talk about pricker and poker and anti-corruption and money laundering and all this kind of stuff later. Because the reality is, is that to prove racketeering, for example, because that's effectively what, you know, the Gupta state capture enterprise yes. was, it's racketeering. 
It's a group of people conspiring together with a, with a, with a common criminal purpose. But if, if you're going to try and prosecute all three Gupta brothers and their wives and all their employees and every single person who ever worked for a state-owned entity or state department, you, you're effectively going to, you know, I always come back to the scene in The Dark Knight, the Batman movie, right? Where Harvey Dent, the, the sort of anti-hero, he, he gets all these mobsters and there's like a hundred of them into one court to charge them all at the same time. It's farcical, you know, it's, it's not meant to stick. It's just meant to look amazing. And it will take day, years. It will take years and millions exactly. and millions of rants. It will take up a lot of time with no real effect. Exactly. I want to ask you about something simple, you know. Yes. And and MFA, MFMA and PFMA are very, very clear laws um, with mm. with consequences built into the laws, yet we do mm. not see Treasury or anybody applying those laws and holding people accountable. You know, it's to me it's the greatest mystery of South Africa is we have all these fantastic laws, but we just simply don't implement them. Mm. And and that to me is 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 the greatest sort of mystery because if if I as a journalist if I transgress and am I am unfair in in my reporting I will be held to account immediately someone can take me to the press ombudsman and I have to apologize or withdraw or correct my or reporting get fired or whatever if mm. if the transgression is serious enough yes, yeah. my bosses will tell me to pack my stuff the same moment and leave mm. you know there's there's genuine accountability I can lose my job tomorrow if I make a serious mistake you know and I just get the feeling that for far too long, people in very serious positions of power in this country have just gotten away with things with impunity. Mm. And Zondo is showing that to again to us now. If you're a loyal member of the ANC and you were deployed by the ANC into a position, you're pretty much set. You don't have to worry about going to jail and you don't have to worry about being hounded out of your job unless, of course, you're opposing criminal factions. Let's talk about the Zondo Commission's recommendations to wrap up this chat on sabotage ESCOM under siege. Carl Cowan, what did Chief Justice Zondo recommend about ESCOM in, in a nutshell? So in a nutshell, he recommended a raft of criminal prosecutions and investigations against former CEO Brian Leffe, former acting CEO Machila Koko, and also former Chief Financial Officer Mr. Anaj Singh. Those are sort of the three central players in in you know the Gupta's capture of of ESCOM. And to contextualize this a bit further, in the last version of the report that came out, you know, on Wednesday, the Zondo Commission estimates that the Gupta family laundered 15 billion Rand out of South Africa. And 97% of that money came from Transnet and ESCOM. That's so, something that Autos Rudy Heineke um, has been saying all along. 50 billion Rand's worth of contracts were at stake and of that, mm. $15.5 billion ended up in the Gupta's pockets. Exactly. You know, and it's startling to see it on a, on, in black and white like that, I think, because you, you often get stuck in, in the minutiae of these things. But in terms of ESCOM, really, it's about now prosecuting those who were involved in state capture or aided and abetted it and getting the organization to move on, really, from there. Because... Nothing that Zondo wrote about ESCOM was a surprise to anybody. I think that every, all of us knew about, you know, the sort of extent of, of state capture's effect at ESCOM. And now the organization is perfectly positioned, or the business as ESCOM is perfectly positioned to take Zondo's recommendations and run with them and try and instill again 
a culture of excellence at ESCOM. Remember, we're talking about a place that in 2001 was voted the best power utility in the world. Mm. Uh, it, I, I genuinely believe that there are some truly amazing people who work at ESCOM, you know, whose names are never in the newspaper, who never catch any, any recognition for the work that they do on a daily basis, just trying to keep things ticking over. But I also genuinely believe that there are true criminals within ESCOM's ranks that need to be weeded out effectively. And I think the Zonda Commission report gave them the ammunition to do that. The question okay. now becomes, at what point does ESCOM stop relying on the National Prosecuting Authority to deliver consequences for those who came before the current leadership? Can ESCOM uh, initiate civil litigation against these people? Indeed, it can, and ESCOM already has. Um, in, you know, together with the SIU, um, working with the SIU, they've they've already started to to try and claw back some of some of the monies that that um, that that was spent. You know, they've they've taken former former Minister Swane uh, included is included in that, and they've they've also ESCOM has embarked on something. You know, something that they don't often receive a lot of recognition for since early 2018, starting with Jabu Mabuza, the late Jabu Mabuza, and Pakamani Hadebe, the former CEO. And continued by Jan Oberolser and, and Andre de Reiter now and Professor Machova, they have engaged with these multinational companies. McKinsey has paid back money. ABB has paid back money. There are others that are likely to follow. And, and PwC, I think, has paid back money. Deloitte mm. has paid back money. You know, so that, that is not often talked about because obviously it's not convenient to the narrative that everybody at ESCOM is useless. But mm. I think ESCOM has done really well to try and exact some form of accountability in the absence of prosecutions. But of course, nothing can ever replace someone being sent to jail for something that they did wrong. You can make them pay, you can make them lose their house, but it's not justice. Sending somebody to jail sends a very strong message and it's a deterrent for people to do the same in the future. I think that's part of the need for criminal investigations and prosecutions. My closing question, my very last question, the whole time that we're talking, um, I'm looking at Ravin Gordon's face on your book, Sabotage. What role does he play or doesn't he play in fixing ESCOM? You know, this is something that's always that's always interested me. In the past, we saw ministers of public enterprises having an, 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 an outsized influence on the day-to-day running of ESCOM. I'm talking specifically about ministers like Lynn Brown, who did, you know, President Zuma's bidding or the Gupta's bidding in terms of appointments and in terms of how things were run at ESCOM. And Malusi Gigaba. And Malusi Gigaba, of course. You know, so Gordon, I get the feeling that he is someone who I think understands ESCOM a little bit better than his predecessors. Um, I think that his tenure as finance minister probably get him up to understand ESCOM as a business better. And the one thing that I must say that's refreshing is that Godan is exercising political oversight over ESCOM. There's no doubt about that. He is ESCOM's representative. Effectively, he is its shareholder. But he is not interfering in the day-to-day running of the business. And that is something that I, th- I think is quite heartening. Obviously, the minister has quite a lot of say in how things are done and so on and so forth. But it... On the face of it, and having spoken to quite a lot of people at ESCOM, I don't get the feeling that Godan is is someone who is, you know, sticking his hand into every pie and telling people how to do their jobs. He has appointed, I think, a competent board. Um, the board chairperson definitely is extremely competent. 
And the board has in turn appointed competent people in management. Caleb Kassam, the CFO, very competent person. Um, the, the current acting head of, of generation, uh, Mr. Rulani Matabula, who I, I genuinely hope, you know, applies to stay in the job permanently. Um, uh, the, the head of transmission, Sechemoko Skepesh, also, you know, these are experienced, experienced people who know what they're doing. The problem really is, is that they are facing an uphill battle every single day to keep the power on. And I don't think we understand how stressful and how difficult it is for ESCOM right now to not have us constantly in load shedding. And that's really the bottom line. So much damage was wrought that it's a miracle that we don't have load shedding almost permanently every day. Thank you, Kyle. We're out of time, but thank you very much for speaking to us in the Outer Podcast. It's only a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Ilse Salzfedel, presenter of Outer Insights. If you like Outer's work, please consider donating to them. To do that, simply click on outer.co.za and click on the Join Now button. And if you found the podcast insightful, please share it with your friends.